Welcome to Paradigm Shift, the podcast about the intersection of business and law. By changing yourself, you can change your business. Now, here's your host, Christina Martini. Welcome to Paradigm Shift. My name is Christina Martini, and I'm your host as we explore the intersection of business and law. Today, we are going to talk with a very knowledgeable expert in the cyber insurance space who is here to chat with us about the truth and myth of managing cybersecurity risk. It promises to be a really interesting and thought-provoking discussion. It is my pleasure to welcome Libby Bennett to the show. Libby is currently the president of CyberSecure Work, Inc., a cybersecurity, privacy, and insurance consulting practice located in Maryland. She has been in the insurance and reinsurance industry for over 30 years. Libby spent time at Beasley Insurance Group as the U.S. lead treaty underwriter for specialty lines products, including cyber liability. Prior to that, she held various senior treaty underwriting positions, managing professional lines, employment practices, and cyber liability with General Reinsurance, Inc., a Berkshire Hathaway company. She has also worked for Zurich in primary underwriting of various property and casualty products. In the mid-1990s, Libby became a licensed Maryland attorney and worked in private practice. She served as chair of the Emerging Issues Committee of the Torts and Insurance Practice Section of the ABA. She is a member of the Minnesota Lawyers Mutual Board of Directors. Through the International Association of Privacy Professionals, Libby is a certified information privacy professional and certified as a privacy information manager. It is my pleasure to welcome Libby Bennett to the show. Well, thank you so much, Tina. I'm really excited to be here today. So Libby, let's kick things off with you telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and what made you decide to be a lawyer. Yeah, well, I started my work life off, you know, as a poli-sci major in undergraduate school and ended up getting a, a job at an insurance company. And while I was working there, I thought, well, I'll go back to school. So I ended up going back to law school as a young adult and got my law degree and was really excited about it. You know, very passionate about law for, you know, studying political science and thinking that I could probably make a, a good living by being a lawyer. Were you thinking as you'd made the decision to go to law school that the insurance industry was where you would like to practice? Well, the irony of it was if anybody ever tells you that they wanted to start out insurance, they're probably fibbing to you. Nobody thinks they're going to start out in insurance, but you know, through family and other means, that's where I ended up. And I have to tell you that the practice of law and the insurance industry have such a tremendous history with one another. And it has been a fascinating, fascinating area. And I've really, really come to love it. So it's been a great place to be. So why don't you tell us about that path? You know, it's interesting. I don't know if you knew this about me, but I had a brief stint of experience in the insurance industry when I was, um, it was after my second year of law school, I went to a law firm that specialized in insurance defense litigation Unfortunately, that firm dissolved probably about 15 years ago now. But why don't you tell us a little bit more about the industry and about your path once you became a lawyer within that industry? 
Yes. Since I started on the company side, I was educated and schooled really on the business of insurance so that when I went into private practice as a commercial litigator, I got to see what happens when all the the best intentions go awry, right? So you think you're doing the right thing when you're writing an insurance policy, but then the facts of a particular situation come up and you realize the words of the policy don't actually explain what is supposed to happen. And that's when litigation arises. And so that opportunity to sort of see it from the business side and then see it from the litigator side really helped me when I went back into the industry after I left private practice and went back into the industry designing insurance products. And that set of experiences really helped me in drafting coverage because I could actually see how the litigator was going to see it as well as how the business person was going to see it. So it's been a really fascinating opportunity, I think, through the years that I've been in in business and and in practice to see both sides. So how has the industry changed over the years? I mean, obviously, I would think that, you know, because it's so closely tied to business and, you know, different companies obviously need insurance, seek out insurance. It's all about mitigation of, of risk. Clearly businesses and, and entities have evolved significantly over the past, you know, 10, 15, 20 plus years. How has the insurance industry changed and evolved over time? Yeah, so I would say the industry is quite slow to evolve. There's a lot of reasons for that. It's regulated. There's 50 state departments of insurance. So the industry is not able to be facile the way other types of companies can be facile in making changes. So that's one obstacle to, to being you know quite innovative. Having said that, what you have seen in the last probably five years, maybe seven years, is the rise of predictive analytics in the underwriting of risk and understanding the characteristics of risk. And so those technologies are deployed in the large company space. So you think of a a Travelers or a Hartford, those size companies are using all kinds of mathematical models to try and understand the behavior of risk in their portfolios. I would differentiate that from other types of insurers like mutual insurance companies or smaller kinds of companies. Think of a lawyer's malpractice company, for instance. They're not nearly of the same scale that Hartford or Travelers is or an AIG. So their use of predictive analytics is a little slower. But that's one major shift that's happened in the industry. And I think the second piece is the rise of bad faith litigation. So in certain states, you know, carriers have to go ahead and quickly settle claims. Otherwise, they will be charged with bad faith, which is a punitive action and can result in quite large, you know, damages against the carrier. So you'll see better, I think, claim handling as a result of that. And those are sort of two forces that are active in the industry today. So with respect to the bad faith litigation, I mean, you've mentioned some really interesting facets of the industry. So do you think that the rise in bad faith litigation is a byproduct of there being more bad faith or just being able to, you know, diagnose, so to speak, the problem more easily? Well, I mean, I think if we look at the state of Florida, for example, the laws there are pretty tight with how quickly you need to settle a claim. And on one level, you can understand that. If you're a consumer and you have an automobile or you have a home and you've had some kind of damage to it, you know, from a public public perspective, quick settlement obviously is a good thing, right? You want to get money into people's hands. 
I think the industry would say that though that the laws in Florida are really punitive. Sometimes claims adjusters, when you have a surge of claims, for example, they can't necessarily get to the claims within that time frame. And then there are people that are sitting to then file suit and allege bad faith. So, you know, it's not every state. There are some states that are hot spots. And there, you know, carriers have to develop strategies around how to handle their claims in those in those jurisdictions to avoid a bad faith case. How do you feel about the evolution of data analytics and its use in your industry? I mean, obviously, a lot of industries are employing data analytics and metrics. And, you know, it's interesting. I've had this conversation with a number of people across industries. And I I think that there are mixed emotions about the use of data analytics. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I've been an underwriter for many years. So I have a view of individuals' contribution in underwriting risk. And, And where predictive analytics, I think, is a quantum leap forward in terms of understanding the nuances of a given risk. So Prior to predictive analytics, all risks look the same. If you filled out a paper application and you answered some questions, your firm looked the same as the firm down the street. With predictive analytics, we actually get to see some nuances about, let's say, your firm versus another firm, which we couldn't see before. We could have seen them if we had all the time in the world and could have gone and dug out that information about the individual risk. But today, we can use this data aggregation in order to be able to look at the subtleties of the risk. I think what the challenge is, is when we're in an inflection point in terms of losses, and that past may or may not be predictive of the future. Because insurance is all about looking at the rear view mirror. It's not about looking at out the front of the windshield. And so if those analytics are telling you a story about history, but are not, in fact, predictive of the future, then you can end up with a problem. And that's where an underwriter who can look at an emerging issue like cyber, for example, says, okay, that history is really not going to be helpful. And, you know, turn off the machine and turn on the human intuition and knowledge about what may be coming down the pike. And that is a great segue into my next question, which is, I would love to hear more, as I'm sure my listeners would as well, about how you ended up doing what you do today within the insurance business and how you started in the cyberspace. So I have to say, I've been working in the cyberspace since 1999. So, you know, when, when uh, quote unquote, the internet was uh, created, and when it was actually going into the commercial space, I was uh, working for General Reinsurance as a treaty marketing person. And at that time, General Re wanted to create, we called it internet risk. We didn't call it cyber at that point in time, but an internet risk liability insurance policy and an internet property policy to sell to their customers. And so I created the language. We did a rollout to the industry and the industry did not come because at that time in 1999, very few you know, people were just getting onto the internet. Businesses were just starting to use it and we really weren't seeing any losses yet. So you know, that was a long time ago, 1999. Just before 9-11, I was involved with Richard Clark and the Treasury Department in a meeting down at D.C. where the White House was trying to seek help from the insurance and reinsurance industry to create some pressure on businesses to help them become more secure. So if you think about like Underwriters Laboratory and how that came about from an insurance industry standpoint, the insurance industry can force companies into doing risk management practices 
And so the White House at the time was hoping that the industry would try and help the private sector become more secure. And that was in 2001, so quite a while ago. Anyway, so this has been an area that I've been involved in 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 quite some time. And of course, it's a hot topic today. When you entered this industry, I mean, so clearly you have deep knowledge and experience in this area. When you first started your involvement and developing an expertise in this area 20 years ago, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear sort of what the landscape looked like. You've described it a bit. Was there anything back then that you thought you saw as a real burgeoning threat and risk that has come to fruition? And, you know, conversely, was there anything that was on the table back then that folks were really worried about that ended up not being as cataclysmic as maybe they thought it was? I mean, I was practicing for, you know, six years before Y2K, for example, and I just remember people developing practice areas within my firm really just um, to help clients develop a checklist to prepare themselves for Y2K and internet threats were definitely among them. What what was the landscape like back then? Really, it was a very bifurcated landscape, meaning the government had a pretty good idea what was going on, but was was not really very good in forthcoming and explaining it to the private sector. Meaning, you know, in this particular example, they wanted the private sector to come up with a catastrophe fund. Today we have TRIA, you know, we have a terrorism risk sharing legislation for terrorism, but they wanted to have something for like a cyber hurricane was the term they used at the time because they feared a, an accumulation risk, that there would be something that attacked our systems that would hit multiple businesses and bring you know, pieces of our infrastructure down. They're still worried about that today. And what we know today, of course, is that we do have nation states and criminal elements and you know, those types of uh, organizations who are trying to do damage to our infrastructure. So back then, that was what the big worry is. Well, from an insurance standpoint, we're all about numbers. So we can't insure something that we can't figure out what the frequency or severity of the losses are going to be. And so this bifurcation of information, not knowing what the loss patterns could look like, meant that the industry could not get into insuring or reinsuring this risk. So that's back in 1999-2000 period of time. Fast forward to today, 2019, today we've moved on that. We've got an industry that's about $3 billion here in the United States of both homeowners and like identity theft coverage on the homeowner side. And about, you know, that's about a billion dollars and about $2 billion in the commercial sector, which represents about 30% of the businesses in the United States. So we still don't have a robust, I mean, it's a big market, but it's not, you know, mature yet by any stretch of the imagination. And the market is concentrated in 10 insurers that are either global or large national insurers, and they are the only ones that have a really big sizable book. And part of the reason for that is because the other insurers still don't understand what that risk profile looks like and are unwilling to put their balance sheet up against you know, the exposure today. So we still have a long way to go. Well, and, you know, and that's a great segue into my next question, which is, you know, fast forwarding to 
today, as well as the last several years, I think all of us are hearing much more about cyber threats and not just the threat and potential risk, but we are watching cyber events of huge proportions impacting both companies as well as firms. And, you know, we would love to hear more from you about what are some of the most recent threats in the cyber world. And we've heard from you as as to how difficult it was back in 1999 to really get our arms around the risk and how certain insurers are even having difficulties today. What is it about today's threats that make them particularly difficult to deal with, both from an insurance perspective and just a, a management perspective when you're the company that's or the firm that's being impacted? So I think from the industry perspective, my observation is that the traditional approach to underwriting, which is uh, you go to an agent, you fill out a paper application, or you do an application online, and somebody makes a decision about whether you're an acceptable risk or not. That underwriting process really, in a sense, is inadequate for actually evaluating whether a particular risk, what's the cyber maturity of a particular risk. So it's asking some peripheral questions, but it's not asking the deep technical questions, the technological questions that an underwriter, if they knew the answers to that, would have a much better view or more transparent view of what the cyber risk is of a particular business. And part of that is, you know, institutional. We have agents who don't want to ask their clients, you know, lots of questions. We have clients that don't want to answer lots of questions. There's a whole kind of a psychological dimension to it, if you will, with regard to that. So what we're seeing is the rise of some um, technologies that are doing what we call outside-in scans to underwrite that that exposure. That's a imperfect, but it's slightly better than answering a paper application. And then there's much deeper assessments that can be done actually to identify the transparent issues of a of a particular firm. So that's from the underwriting side. From the business side, my observation is really that business leaders. They're not technicians. They're not technical. They're excellent at being lawyers. They're excellent at being financial advisors. They're excellent at being architects, whatever. They're excellent at something, but they're not excellent about technology. And so they don't even know what the right questions are to ask. So they rely on their IT department. I'm going to outsource that to my IT department. They're the ones who are going to make sure that I'm secure or I'm going to outsource it to the cloud or whatever. And so the business leadership, I think, needs to actually become educated on on what are the things that are important to know and focus on. What are you seeing are, you know, like if you had to do like a top three or top five or even more types of threats that you've been seeing recently, you know, what would you say those are in terms of cybersecurity threats? So it depends on what industry you're in. So if you're, for example, a Department of Defense contractor, then the threat actors that are attacking your industry are going to be nation states who are trying to steal the technology or get into the Department of Defense through a contractor who may be insecure. It could be criminals who are trying to secure intellectual property information. So that's different than hospitality, where the attacks on hospitality are more about getting your um, credit card information and, you know, trying to steal that and or, 
the employee information to the cell employee health records. So different industries have different threat profiles based on what the threat actors are interested in. And so that's probably one of the things that we're coming to understand in this area from an operator standpoint, that not the risk of loss is not the same for each industry. It varies based on what the threat actor is interested in obtaining from that industry segment. Talk about, for example, the, you know, the 23 municipalities in Texas got hit last week or the week before. There's a group of people who are going after municipalities and they're being able to, you know, get in this case, extortion money from them in some instances, um, you know, and or other information out of those systems um, because they're weak. And so that's, you know, a group that's decided municipalities are the ones that they want to go after. So it's, it's interesting to see how this is evolving. How, I mean, if you have a, do you have any sense on a percentage basis, how often these cyber threats are ransomware versus malware, for example? Well, you know, it's interesting. What we've seen is there are rises and falls in these attacks. And again, our data points aren't many, right? We, first of all, that we haven't been ensuring this all that long. So, you know, our data points are maybe 10 years worth of information. So in 2018, what we saw was the rise of the nation states. In 2017 and 2018, the fingerprints of nation states in these attacks were what we were seeing. The WannaCry event, the Petcha, the Not Petcha, are examples of nation states that were testing some of their capabilities, specifically in, in, in the case of one of these viruses against Ukrainian government, that got out in the wild and hit all kinds of businesses around the world. So that's that was substantively different than what we were seeing in, say, 2015 and 2016, which were more breaches, just good old-fashioned breaches. And then in 2016, we saw a lot of extortion cases. And the value of extortion at that time was not that expensive. As time's gone on, the value of those extortion demands have, have grown, and they're asking for more and more money. So, you know, every year there's some different emphasis that's going on in the loss patterns, which makes it a little hard to pin down. Our time is almost up for our first segment, which is hard to believe because I feel like we just got started. As we wind down our first segment together, do you have any final thoughts as we draw the first part of our conversation to a close? And where can our listeners find you? I would just say that this is a this subject area is a fascinating one. It's one that we should not shy from, but embrace and understand. It's most lawyers and business owners would find this a really, really interesting area, and it's not something to shy away from. And certainly your listeners can find me on LinkedIn under Libby Bennett, and that's B-E-N-E-T, or they can reach me at L Bennett, so L-B-E-N-E-T, at Assured, A-S-S-U-R-E-D, dot enterprises, or L Bennett at cybersecurework.com. Great. Well, thanks so much, Libby. I'm looking forward to the second part of our conversation. Thank you, Tina. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Paradigm Shift. We hope that you've enjoyed part one of our conversation with Libby Bennett and that you will join us next week as we continue our conversation. I'm your host, Christina Martini. Please look for our weekly episodes every Tuesday. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 
please visit us at www.paradigmshiftshow.com. We would love to hear from you. Please look for new episodes of Paradigm Shift every Tuesday.